Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 7. And as the beginning of verse 1 tells us, this short text contains the last words of David. Now, for those of you who are joining us this morning who have not been with us for many, many weeks and many, many months, almost years, (laughs) we've been considering the account of David's life at Christ the King. From the day Samuel first visited him in Bethlehem in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we have followed David's accomplishments and David's sufferings. We've seen his goodness as well as the wickedness into which he fell. We've seen the kingdom of justice and righteousness he established as well as the compromised kingdom he led in the years following his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. All of which is to say that we've seen that David's life is complex, just like ours. There's been very good in it, and there's been very bad in it. Now we come to the last words of David. Not meaning that these were literally the final words David ever spoke. That's more like what we seem to have in 1 Kings chapter 2 when David speaks to his son Solomon, when his time to die draws near, the text says there. These aren't David's last words ever in 2 Samuel 23. What seems to be intended is that these words were perhaps David's last official public utterance. Maybe the last of his inspired songs. Either way, I think the point is that these are the last words in Samuel's account of his life. This is the end. Now, I know there's a chapter and a half still to go, but you know if you've been here the last couple of weeks that this morning we find ourselves in the second half of what is the poetic center of the conclusion of Samuel. Chapters 21 to 24 are a carefully constructed ending to the entirety of First and Second Samuel. And so, yes, in chapter 24, you'll find David saying other things. But we're not working chronologically in this section of Samuel. Chapter 24 doesn't happen after these last words of David are spoken. The point is, our author has put David's words here at the heart of the conclusion to the book. And David's words here at the summit, if you will, of this conclusion of Samuel come in two parts. Last week, we considered David's great psalm of thanksgiving in chapter 22. The celebration of his deliverance, his dominion, both of which David recognizes were by the hand of the Lord. And we saw last week how all of that had been founded on the astonishing truth that the Lord delighted in David. Last week in chapter 22 was the retrospective prayer of David as he reflected on all that the Lord had done. I think chapter 23, verses 1 to 7, are the prospective prophecy of David. 
This is David looking ahead. This is his prophetic will and testament is what I'm proposing. And what I think David sees and what I think David speaks of in this final statement of Samuel is the king. Not meaning Solomon. Meaning, I think, David speaks of the final representative of his dynasty. The one who will consummate the kingdom. The one who will rule eternally in a kingdom of which David's own rule and David's own kingdom, he knows, were but a pale reflection. I think in these verses, David speaks of the Messiah. This is David's great final hope, brothers and sisters, and it is a magnificent vision. What a way to end the life of David in the books of Samuel. And what I ultimately want to suggest to you this morning is that David's great hope remains our great hope too some 3,000 years later because it is the Bible's great hope for the world. If ever there has been a text in this lengthy series of Samuel that leads us to this point, this is the point in our study of Samuel at which we're led to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where I want to get to this morning. Only I realize I have work to do if I'm going to convince you that this is what David's talking about. So let's get down to it. I hope you'll keep your Bibles there in front of you as we consider the text. The first thing to realize, it's a short text. The first thing to know is that this short passage, verses 1 and 2 and the first half of verse 3, are all preparatory, right? The prophecy begins in the second half of verse 3. So that's the simple division we'll work with here. We'll look at the preparation in verses 1 to 3a, and then we'll look at the prophecy in verses 3b through 7. Only I think that David interrupts the prophecy in verse 5, but we'll talk about that when we come to it. Let's begin with the preparation in verses 1 to 3a. David's last words begin with him speaking in the third person in the second line of verse 1. In this preparatory section, David tells us who he is and what he's saying. What he's saying, he classifies as an oracle, right? Two times the word oracle occurs there in verse 1. We'll come back to that in a moment. As for who he is, David says four things about himself here. And I think the point he's getting at matters for us to properly appreciate what he has to say. So let's take a little time on it. Four things David says about himself. First, he says the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. And it's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while since 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel the prophet went to Bethlehem at the Lord's direction. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the Lord said in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Only no one, including Samuel, thought it would be this son. 
the youngest one, out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. And the Lord said to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And I don't know if you remember this moment, but in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 16, Samuel takes the horn of the oil and he anoints David, and the text says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And I think there's a few things that might be the emphasis that David intends here when he says he's the son of Jesse. But maybe it's partly that moment that's in view here. In any event, verse 1 continues, as David says, the second thing about himself, he says, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. What does David mean by raised on high? Well, I think it means David had been exalted to the throne. He was raised on high as the king. And consider the significance of that. Jesse was an obscure man, from an obscure town called Bethlehem. But Jesse was of the line of the royal tribe of Judah, remember? A descendant of Boaz, as the book of Ruth reminds us, there are ancient royal prophecies in play here. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. It would be David, the son of Jesse, of the line of Judah, who was raised on high, who was elevated to the kingship, who went up to Hebron where he became king over the tribe of Judah in 2 Samuel 2, who seven years later became king over all Israel in 2 Samuel 5, who made the city of Jerusalem his royal city, And 2 Samuel 5, verse 10 tells us that there David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The Lord exalted his kingdom for the sake of the Lord's people Israel. Chapter 5, verse 12 told us David knew why he was king. He was nothing in himself. But God had done it in fulfillment of his word. David had been just the lonely shepherd boy, but no longer because the third thing that David says is that he was the anointed of the God of Jacob, which of course means he was anointed to be king. But I think the emphasis here seems to be on the fact that Samuel anointed the one who was already the Lord's anointed. That David was the one whom the Lord had chosen. You read 1 Samuel 16 carefully, you see that. David was the man after God's own heart. Remember? And I tried to explain then how that means that David was the man on whom God set his heart according to God's own purposes. David knows why he was the anointed of the God of Jacob, the anointed of the God whose promises to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35 include him saying, 
a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Truly the God of Jacob had chosen and anointed David in accordance with his promises. And brothers and sisters, those promises to Jacob, those echo God's promises to Abraham. Those promises weren't just that there would be a king to rule over Israel. We've been down this road plenty of times before. The descendants of Jacob as the descendants of Abraham are God's chosen people for a purpose. Remember? They would be made into a great nation, the Lord said, through whom would come blessing to all the families of the earth. David knows who he is. He's a king in the purposes of God. And those purposes will reach far beyond David himself. And so we come to the fourth thing David says at the end of verse 1. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. Or at least that's one possible way to translate the enigmatic Hebrew phrase there. But there's a marginal note. I think you have it in at least, if you're looking at the black-covered ESV Bibles that are on the table or on your on your stu- your stump there. There's a tiny tiny note if you can even read it. This could be translated instead of the sweet psalmist of Israel, the favorite of the songs of Israel, or even the hero of Israel's songs. Meaning David was the favorite or the hero of the songs of Israel. Of course he was. He was the anointed of the God of Jacob. He was the one who had been raised on high. They'd been singing about David since Goliath. Right? And you look at the book of Psalms. Who are the Psalms mostly about? Well, they're about David. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, Psalm 2, verse 6 says. That was David. Only the point seems to be, given where we're moving in this passage, that David was but a shadow of the good things to come, if you will. The Psalms, the songs of Israel, they are about David by and large, yes, but even a cursory read of the New Testament reveals, given how often the Psalms are quoted at key moments in the New Testament, that they point way beyond David. The Psalms are full of messianic significance. Even as they speak of David, they point to another king. The king I suggest David now glimpses in this text. Because we can't lose sight of what David's saying here, right? He just told us who he is, four things about himself. Now he tells us what he's saying. And what he's saying is an oracle, as we noted earlier. That's not a term we've encountered in Samuel. Though it's not at all uncommon in the Old Testament, 376 times the Hebrew word occurs in the Old Testament, of which 365 times it refers to an utterance of God. An oracle is almost always referring to a declaration from God. That's what David's words contain here, which is precisely the point David now makes in verses 2 to 3a, isn't it? Look at verse 2. 
the spirit of the Lord speaks by me, he says. His word is on my tongue. Verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. We get a fourfold assertion that what David is about to declare didn't originate in him. It turns out that David's last words aren't even his own. They're the Lord's. What we get here is the Lord's word that the Lord spoke to David, which you realize means that David's a prophet, right? David literally speaks for the Lord. Not that everything David ever said was prophetic. But clearly, sometimes the Lord did speak through David in this way. David was a prophet. The New Testament acknowledges that. Peter, in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, says that David, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. 2 Samuel chapter 23 is, I think, the clearest text we have that shows David's prophetic role. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's referring there to a psalm of David that he just quoted in his Pentecost sermon when he says David was a prophet. It wasn't just his last words, in other words, that were prophetic. And just reflect reflect briefly on these lines in 2 Samuel 23. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. He says, the spirit of the Lord is the Lord's breath. You probably know the word for spirit in Hebrew. It can mean breath or wind. Words are carried by the breath. David speaks here by the breath of the Lord, which is why it's the Lord's word that's on David's tongue, as verse 2 says. It's the God of Israel who has spoken, yea, even the rock of Israel, meaning this isn't a word just for David. David doesn't say, my rock said to me, right? Last week we saw how David did call God his rock when he was reflecting on his own deliverance and dominion in chapter 22. This is something else. This is the rock of Israel who speaks to David. Meaning what we're about to hear ties into the promises and the purposes of the whole people of God. This is David the prophet. He's giving us an oracle. Now, that word for oracle, I've told you it's common in the Old Testament. But it's not common in the literature that precedes Samuel. Does that make sense? The word for oracles used hundreds of times, but in the prophets, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Amos, in other prophetic books, at the time of Samuel, there had only been a few other occurrences of this word in the Old Testament. As I count them, and I'm just here looking at the books of Genesis through Judges. In Genesis through Judges, there are six verses where that word is used. You know where four of those six verses are from? <laughs> this is amazing, I think. 
four of those six verses are in Numbers chapter 24. And you're saying Numbers, right. Not my favorite book, to be honest. I know. And there's not much time for this. But do you know what Numbers 24 is about? It's about Balaam. Remember that story? Numbers 22, Balaam's riding on a donkey with the men of Moab to go out and curse Israel. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord in the path, and Balaam gets angry at the donkey, and he strikes the donkey, and the donkey talks to Balaam. And Balaam's eyes are opened. And the Lord tells Balaam to speak only the word that I tell you. And then we get to these oracles of Balaam in Numbers chapter 23 and 24. Only the word for oracle isn't used until Numbers 24. And there's two oracles in that chapter, and they both start the same way. And listen to how similar this is in structure to what David's doing. Okay? I'm just going to take the second of the two oracles in Numbers 24. They both begin the same way. This is verse 15, Numbers 24. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. The oracle of the man whose eye is open. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I know the personal description is a bit different there because this is Balaam, not David. David's the king. David references who he is in his lead up. But you see the similarity in form, don't you? It's striking. Here's the really striking thing. Do you know what the last oracle of Balaam in Numbers 24 is about? Many of you do know, even if you don't remember, you'll recognize this text. Listen, this is verse 17 of Numbers 24. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and Break down all the sons of Sheth, verse 19, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Look, I don't think this is crazy. This is David near the end of his life. Could it be that his final prophetic utterance is intended? to be a further expansion of this ancient prophecy concerning the star out of Jacob, the scepter out of Israel, so that the whole point is that that star, that scepter, yes, it's coming out of Jacob, yes, out of Israel, but David can be more specific than that. That that star and scepter who will exercise eternal dominion is going to come out of his house, you see that it would be a descendant of David who would be that star, that scepter, that king who is now, I think, the blazing focus of David's oracle in verse 3b of our text. We're moving now to the prophecy section, obviously. Look at it. One who rules justly over men, he declares. Not over Israel. 
over men. It's a universal ruler, David envisions, one who rules in the fear of God. And when he does, verse 4 says, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. In other words, I think David's last words are a prophecy about a person, brothers and sisters. In the context, given all the preparation we went through in verses 1 to 3a, I think this oracle has to be heard as an announcement, as a promise, not, I regret to say, as a general proverbial saying like the one the ESV and most other major translations have here. You see that? The ESV in verse 3b does not so easily point you in the direction I'm trying to point you, does it? The ESV says that David's oracle is this. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. In other words, the ESV and most English translations are suggesting it's a kind of general principle that the Lord speaks now through David which then allows you to look back and evaluate David's own kingship and, and, and the rule of the kings coming after him, and that's one way to go here. And of course, it's possible to translate it that way. You could even argue that we're meant to see even then that ultimately, of course, it'll be the Messiah who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, so that the point's not necessarily lost, but how I wish it were clearer. Because I don't think the Lord's final word to David is a principle. I think David's talking about a person. The Hebrew's very terse. It has to be made into a sentence in English somehow. There are no verbs present. So that, yes, if you're a Bible translator, you have to do something. Let me offer you a fairly literal translation of verse 3 and see if you can get what I'm saying. Verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. And now here's the more literal Hebrew. A ruler over mankind. A righteous one. A ruler in the fear of God. He dawns on them like the morning light. That's what's there. Why not translate it something like a ruler over men will arise? A just ruler ruling in the fear of God. You see, I'm not denying that good kings will rule justly in the fear of God. That's certainly true. It's just that I don't think David's last words are intended to remind the people of Israel what to look for in the many kings who will follow him. I think David prophesies about the star, the scepter, the king, because it's only that king's dominion that will embrace humanity. It's only that king who will be unfailingly righteous. It's only that king who will rule in a way that's in full accord with God's will. So that David's prophetic oracle is then directly in line, I think, with later prophetic passages about the Messiah. Passages like Jeremiah 23, verse 5. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, hear that? A righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness. And when that ruler comes, all the light that will proceed from him, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Or maybe you prefer Isaiah. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Or Solomon in Psalm 72, verse 6. May he, the messianic king, may he be like rain that falls on the moan grass, like showers that water the earth. This was the oracle of David. The word of the Lord that David spoke. And where is this ruler to be found? Well, come from David's own house. That's what David means by inserting into this oracle as I read it. His words in verse 5. We're nearing the end here. The promise of a righteous ruler is given concrete expression by David. He says, for does not my house stand so with God? Or in other words, you're right back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, and then verse 16 that I've read probably 55 times in the last six months. 2 Samuel 7, verse 11, the Lord will make you a house, David. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The promised righteous ruler and the promised son of David are one and the same. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, David continues, ordered in all things and secure. I really like the NLT's translation of that line. Arranged and guaranteed in every detail. His kingdom cannot fail, brothers and sisters. For, David concludes his inserted words, will he not cause to prosper all my help? Or you could translate it, my salvation. I think this is David claiming all the salvation promised to him and to his house. Will he not cause to prosper all my help? And my desire, David says, which I think is beautiful, that at the end of his life, God's promise was David's great desire. Reminds me a bit of how David had prayed immediately after receiving those covenant promises. From 2 Samuel 7, verse 25, David prayed, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. David's last words were a prophetic oracle that declared God would do, as he said. A future ruler would come, one who would establish God's kingdom. That's what the greatest king of Israel ever had, the greatest king Israel ever had, declares in his last prophetic oracle. It was David's great hope And it remains ours, dear friends. Only now we know a lot more than David did. 
We know the one of whom David's last words spoke. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, hear it, forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Only we're still waiting for it. For the fullness of that kingdom to come. Oh, Jesus had been has been raised on high. He is the anointed of the God of Jacob, ascended to the right hand of the Father. God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, Peter says in his Pentecost sermon. All of which means that this is what I want you to be left with at the high point of the conclusion of the book of Samuel. The king shall come, brothers and sisters. David's final hope is ours. The morning light will dawn. And when it does, the salvation of the righteous will stand in stark relief against the judgment of the wicked. The prophecy of David, the oracle of David, concludes this way in verse 6 of our text. But worthless men, godless men, are all like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. It's the final judgment of the king. And on that day, he cannot take them with his hand. He must remove the thorns with iron and the shaft of a spear. because they want no part in a righteous reign. They will not submit to a righteous king. They cannot be part of this righteous kingdom. David's last words remind me of some of John's last words. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18, as we end. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small. But for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.